This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, Shane Sorensen. Hey, Jordan. Nice, nice to officially meet you and finally get on. I know we've been uh, playing tag for a while. So Yes, um, I'm really grateful um, that we're finally getting to talk. Uh, you started... We started talking to each other when your book was in the manuscript phase and you're kind enough to send me the manuscript and uh, your book is, is now out, Renaissance Wisdom. Fantastic book. I'm really excited to talk to you about today. Appreciate it. Um, why don't I just read the, the viewers and the listeners a little bit of who you are. Uh, first and foremost, you're a lover of wisdom. You consider yourself a modern day philosopher and always seek to question knowledge and come closer to some conception of truth. You're a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You love playing chess. You're a lover of fitness and all things health. You believe that simple things in life are best, and you're a firm believer in the power of individuals and the power of the human spirit. You're seeking to live your life in the best way that you can, perhaps, with some wisdom. And on your Instagram page and your book description, you assure everyone that it's not your wisdom, but wisdom that you've borrowed through consuming philosophy, and you're doing your best to learn from the greats that have come before you and hope to pass it along. And uh, may I just say that, same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, same. I've, I've often said the same thing in my life that... Um, you know, my own thoughts, when I'm, when I'm left to my own way of thinking, my own base self, that how wrong I could be about things. But when I filter my own decision-making process through the filter and the lens of all of these great people who have came before me, that all of a sudden I start to think, what would Lincoln do in this situation? What would Grant do in this situation? What would Marcus Aurelius do in this situation? Or Patton, or all these people that I've come to admire so much. And when I was a, a young business entrepreneur and executive, how many times I messed up and didn't have the answers. Sure. And then I'd fall back on the answers and go out in there and have to go find a book like this to go find some answer that I was looking for. And I would pour myself through it. So anyway, it's great to meet a, uh, a fellow seeker of wisdom and truth. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast. No problem. Again, th thanks so much for having me on. And I, I definitely agree. I think that, um, you know, in our modern age, right, which part, part of the goal of the book is kind of reintroducing timeless and ancient wisdom to people in the modern age. I think in our modern day, we've lost most emphasis as far as like as a collective on wisdom and especially on any kind of wisdom from the past. You know, you've seen you've seen a lot of push in recent years to kind of throw out the past and sort of like form this this whole new kind of concept or this new order going forward. And <clears throat> the thing about this wisdom is it, it's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And it's like when you're reading back through history, you'll see so many people like you mentioned a Lincoln. Right. And we, we look to someone like Lincoln and get inspiration from him. And he, he may have read back and got inspiration from someone like Marcus Aurelius. And he read back and got inspiration from someone like Plato. And he got his inspiration from Socrates. And um, I, I think that collectively as individuals, something that would definitely benefit society is more people kind of looking back towards the past to look for some kind of guidance from, from wiser, kind of a wiser age, I guess, in general. Yeah, 
I think that's uh, that's good advice and it's something that's been incredibly impactful in my life. So tell me, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, originally from Indiana. Uh, I moved down to, currently I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved down here. Yeah, got, got my blue belt in Indiana originally. Um, it was kind of like a jack of all trades. I was like style myself a young Renaissance man. You know, I was about 21 and I was doing a lot of things. I was like trying to fight. I was doing jujitsu. I was learning piano and learning Portuguese and doing all these wow. things. And I just kind of decided I wanted to focus my efforts at getting really good at one thing. And that actually caused me to, to move down to Atlanta, Georgia. I moved down to train at Alliance full time. Mm -hmm. um, it was right after Cobrinha had left. So I, I came in during a bit of a lull uh, right before Lucas Lepre got here and trained under Lucas for a while. So, wow. Um, that, that was what brought me down. I was a nurse and I just worked on weekends and I would just train like full time Monday through Friday, basically. Yeah. Are you still a uh, practicing nurse? No, um, I'm, I'm in the gym business now. Um, yeah. Start been in the gym business for about eight years. I'm a oh, partial wow. owner in a chain of gyms here in Atlanta. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more in line with uh, my, my way of life and my, my thinking. Yeah. Fortunately, our, our medical system's pretty broken in the United States. So, yeah, it's a tough conversation. My wife is a uh, a foot and ankle surgeon, a podiatrist, and so I get to okay. to live it through her eyes. But um, so you uh, you grew up in Indiana. Were your parents entrepreneurs or authors, like or or Renaissance people? You know, what gave you the the impact to or to, to say, oh, I could do this. I could do all these things. No, I've got uh, I've got pretty pretty humble beginnings. Like uh, I'm I'm definitely. I would never claim that I was poor. Like, I don't want to play like a violin for myself, but you know, we, we moved a lot. And the reason we moved is because we were frequently getting evicted. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we had times, you know, when I was growing up that, you know, we were on food stamps and things like that, but you know, I had really close relationship with my mom. I got a lot of love. My, my stepdad, you know, tried really hard and stuff too. So um, good childhood, but just, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very different than kind of my upbringing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting though. You know, you said before to, to look back at the past for wisdom, it's, it's interesting to see the past that you come from and how it, it starts to shape and let, you know, shape the decisions that you make in your life and even wanting to go out there and find uh, a new operating system or new wisdom in your life. Where do you think that uh, it, it kind of kicked off and started for you where you, where you said, I, sh I should look back. You know, I think there there were a couple periods of transformation I've had in my life. So I'm I'm 33 now. So mm -hmm. like I'm I'm just kind of getting into like the, you know, feeling like I'm I'm actually in a peak, somewhat to speak. But uh, when I was younger, I I was pretty depressed. I had you know kind of a weak mindset, and um, I think jujitsu had a lot to do with kind of changing that. There was uh, a mentor that I had. His, his name's John Thomas or uh, Jonathan Thomas. He's really popular uh, jujitsu instructional guy. Um, yeah, sure. He has yeah. red hair, red long hair. Yep, that's him. So I know him from YouTube. <laughs> yeah, we we trained together a lot. We we worked together a lot when I was a purple belt. He was a brown belt going into his black belt. And um, you know, <clears throat> with competing, that was one part of it. I was a really really avid. Uh, competitor, you know, when I was at Purple Belt, I, I was up to like number three in the world in the IBJJF rankings at my weight, and uh, you know, never never got the gold in like a worlds or anything, but you know, I won some uh, IBJJF tournaments and um, placed in a ton of them. But 
that that had a lot to do with kind of the way that I started viewing like improvement and kind of overlooking failure and just kind of not being afraid to look stupid because mm -hmm. when you've been choked out in front of your whole family, uh, you know, you're <laughs> like, yeah, I moved across the country to pursue this dream. And then they come down and they fly down and see you and you're getting like choked unconscious. Uh, <laughs> that that kind of removes a little bit of the fear of what people think about you yeah for um, sure. and and john was actually really like really important in that development of mine also because he would do a lot of little things as a coach where you know he'd show me like a guard lasso and i'd say well you know john like i don't like i don't have flexibility for that and he he would really call you out on your bullshit like if if you said i can't do something he'd be like no like you you can do it Maybe it doesn't feel natural. Maybe, uh, you know, it, it's going to take a while for you to learn it. Maybe you're going to have to do some stretching, whatever it is, but you can do it. Like you have to remove that, the idea of you can't from your, from your mindset. And I think that that was a really, really important thing for me that I took with me from jujitsu into, into everything, right. When I'm writing my book and I'm a nobody, you know, it's like, why, why would you write a book? You know, you're not an author, you're, you're not a, you don't have a degree in philosophy or anything like that, but you know, here I am and it's, it's been about six months and I've done, you know, over 1500 sales in six months, which, uh, you know, I've been told by best-selling authors that they, they have best-selling author friends that sold way less than that on their books. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, um, uh, there, there's a lot to unpack there of, and, and things that you mentioned. One that I, that I want to highlight is, uh, this concept in jujitsu, especially of, you know, programming yourself what you are and what you're not. I'm not flexible. I'm not a closer. I'm this kind of player. I'm that kind of player. Uh, I think that's like a very um, blue belty kind of thing. A lot of blue belts. Yeah. In order to get from blue belt to purple belt, you kind of have to get over that real fast. Right. And uh, I was, I started teaching the beginners class at, at my dojo in 2017. And oftentimes I would be with white belts and blue belts and I would, I would talk to them about that exactly that what you said and they'd say you have to stop and my wife of all people taught me about this not in jujitsu but what she called it were limiting beliefs like yep. things that you say to yourself that they're only true because you're telling yourself that and you know you have to deprogram yourself and if i give myself credit for anything in the world it's that sometimes when people teach me things like one time i'm just like oh that makes such perfect sense why was i doing that <laughs> doing this stupid thing all this time or saying this thing. Like one, one funny example is um, when I came out of college, I had this like long-term college girlfriend and we were breaking up and I was so depressed. And every day I would drive from my office, my, my apartment in New York city to my office on Long Island. And the whole time I'd be like imagining things about her, you know, imagining things about what she's doing, what she's saying. Yeah. And all the torture was in my head. You know, I never, these things weren't even happening. And I would say this thing, it became a mantra, like everything will be okay by lunch. Everything will, because what would happen? I'd get to the office, I, I would start doing work and then I'd eat lunch, I'd pile in the food. And then of course, of course the food would make me happy until dinner, everything yeah. will be okay by dinner. And of course I got super fat. <laughs> and um, You're, and you're eating away wife, your troubles. Yeah. And uh, when I met my wife, you know, Many, many, many years later, she put the name to, I, I, I had unlearned that behavior through jujitsu, but she, I would tell her about that because I would often tell her, I'd say, I'm a bottomless pit of hunger. And she'd be like, you're not a bottomless pit of hunger. Like, yeah, I'm a bottomless pit of hunger. And she'd say, you're not, you're just telling yourself that now start telling yourself anything else. You know, you're flexible. Right. 
you're good at jujitsu. You, you're, you're a great entrepreneur. You're an amazing author. And that becomes the truth of it. And so I, yeah, I just, uh, I, I totally feel what you're saying there. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I talk about that <clears throat> kind of indirectly a little bit in like the book too, where, uh, I, I talk about like bravery and faith. And I think that, I think that faith and bravery and strength are, are sort of like intertwined. I think that it's very hard to be what someone would consider brave if you don't have like some kind of faith in something. And, you know, whether it's, I don't mean faith in the sense that like you have to believe in a God or that it has to be some kind of, some kind of like religious experience, but just like you said, having a little bit of faith in yourself, even if it's not like, you know, I have faith that I'm an, I'm a successful author, right? Like it doesn't have to go that far. It could just be like, I have faith that if I put in the work and I write this book and I take the time and I study that I can make something that I will be proud of. And, yeah. you know, because if, if you don't believe in the work that you're doing, like what, why are you doing it? it at, at the end of the day, you're, you're just kind of, you're, you're really probably destined to fail unless you just get really lucky. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of that comes down to what your motivations are in the first place for doing it. Like if you're writing about something that has deeply impacted you uh, or helped you in some way, you know, that, that was the essence of my book that I'm, about to finish, you know, I have the manuscript, uh, business jujitsu. These principles have helped me so much. You know, I'm, I always try to tell people like, you might see me and say, you know, you, you start making excuses of why I found a lot of success in my life, why I've grown businesses or why I got to where I am in jujitsu. But if you would have saw me as a white belt or saw me as a 28 year old entrepreneur, and talk to me, it would not be the same conversation that you see today, you know? And so uh, the lessons that I was learning in jujitsu were so impactful for me in growing businesses. And I would encounter these lessons over and over and over again in my mat, you know, the match at the end of the, every class, my sensei would give us a talk and he would talk to us about the concepts of what we learned through the lens of strategy and all these things. And then I would unwind something I was doing in business that day or some area that I fucked up or messed up and, um, and, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta tell other people about this. Yeah. You know? And so I imagine it's, do you, does that sound like maybe some of your motivations for, uh, wanting to, you know, write a book about the Renaissance? Yeah. I think, I think that has a lot to do with it is that, you know, at the end of the day, one of the most like painful things that I have to see is when I see someone that is like trapped in this world that they've created for themselves, like the world of their own limiting beliefs where like you, you know, like, for example, you know what you came from. I know what I came from. And because you've, you've built yourself to a certain place, you know, like you believe and you feel that anything is possible because you've seen it, you've done it, right? Like I've, I've seen what it takes to get to be a high level jujitsu competitor. I've seen what it takes to, to write a book, to start successful pages, to run a business, and someone that hasn't had those experiences, it's like all they see is the reality that they are currently living in. And if that reality is a reality of I can't and I'm, I don't have the capability and I don't have the resources. I think that like the only thing sometimes that can break someone out of that is just catching a little bit of wisdom or inspiration from someone else. And I, that's one of the things that I love about philosophy so much. And I think it really intertwines well with uh, jujitsu is just that, you know, philosophy is the way that you view the world. It's every single person on the planet has a philosophy and you, you have a, 
a choice, whether or not you realize it or not, that you can craft and create a robust uh, philosophy that will be beneficial to you as a human being, or you can just kind of accept the philosophy that's like fed to you. And a lot of times just in the world that we live in, the philosophy that is fed to you is, is not very productive. You know, it's like, has a lot to do with competing with people around you and mm -hmm. trying to appear smart and appear a certain way and change your appearance. And especially with social media, there's this like pressure to create this cultivated image of yourself and your life that many times is not even an accurate portrayal of how, how things actually are. Yeah, that's a, a very, very dangerous and slippery slope. Limiting beliefs are sometimes what I call limiting beliefs when I'm coaching someone or, or just counseling someone off a ledge is, uh, you know, don't be the maker of your own madness. It's like you, yeah. the only thing changing it is the color of your thoughts. You know, you are saying those things to yourself over and over and over again, or you're, you're repeating the same mistakes and making the same decisions that are leading to these problems in your life or problems in your business. And, uh, and it's funny how oftentimes like people in, when, and I've been this person, so I know like when you're, when you're locked into that behavior, it's really hard to get out of it unless you just make the decision. Like I want to get out of it or I want to write this book or I'm going to jujitsu tonight. Like it's so it's not like in one way, you know, one of my favorite all time books is The Alchemist. They say it's so easy. It could be written on the face of an emerald. Mm -hmm. Like, is that easy? Like, just go to jujitsu. But yeah. there's those nights where you drive up to the gym and your body's hurting and you had a long day at work. And you know that that guy who beats the crap out of you just walked in the door and your hands are on the steering wheel. And you're just like, I don't want to do it tonight. But then you go in. And all the good things happen on the other side of those nights. Um, and then there's the nights where you lose that battle and you go out with your friends and you have a, a drink and maybe one drink leads to two drinks. And now you're hungover in the morning. And sure. so it's, you get to decide every time, do I go down path A or go, do I go down path B? And what I found is the more times you go down path A to jujitsu, good things happen in your life. More success happens, less hangovers happen. And uh, yeah, so I, I really feel you on this. Um, so oftentimes when I think about uh, philosophy, I think about the Stoics. I think the Stoicism has been um, <clears throat> the most important philosophy to me. You focused here on the Renaissance and more modern thought. Uh, of course, a lot of that was colored by, by the Stoics and even people right. before them. But what about the Renaissance specifically? Um, interested you so the the idea that originally kind of caused me to do the book is um when i was around 23 24 i started a self-improvement blog and that that was at a time where i was kind of going through another sort of like level up as a human being i guess and i i fell out of jujitsu for a while I, I did take about like six months to a year off or so and I ran this blog and I, I went and stayed with a friend in Turkey and taught jujitsu there. And, um, you know, just kind of was like, I guess, going on a little bit of a, a journey of self-discovery, uh, so to speak. And while I was doing that and writing these blogs, I had an idea for a book and it was it was really of a cheesy idea. It was like, you know, 10, 10 hacks to think more like Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. And I thought it was a good idea, like how to be a Renaissance man. And I just kind of 
kept the idea for a while. And over the years, I studied more into philosophy. I got more interested in history. And I was kind of going through my Google Drive one day and saw the idea. And I'm like, because I feel like a lot of people, like most of us have this thing where you have this like idea for something and you just kind of shelve it. And most people just like never go back to it. And I guess I had this day where I, I kind of pulled the idea back out and I was like, man, you know, like maybe I should do this. Maybe I should write it. And so I just kind of put together uh, an outline and then I was like, look, I need to, if I'm going to write a book on the Renaissance, I need to really study this. Like I can't just go on my superficial knowledge of the Renaissance. And I you know ordered a, a stack of like books that was this tall and um, did research for, you know, almost a year. I had textbooks and custom print textbooks I had to order from that were discontinued. And mm -hmm. that was maybe the most fun part, like over, over writing the book or anything was just the, the research and really it, it changed. My idea changed a lot as I actually learned the history more. Um, and, you know, at that point, when I, when I kind of saw everything coming together, I just really, really pushed me even more to want to share that message more. I think that one of the things that I see in the overlap between like the Renaissance and today is that during the middle ages, there was really a push for collectivist thought. And at that time it was, it was religious, but there was kind of this idea that people shouldn't really question the church or church doctrine and individual study, things like philosophy and the humanities, they really fell to the wayside. And, and some religious leaders would even say that it was blasphemous to, to try to pursue knowledge or try to understand things like philosophy or rhetoric or poetry. And you had these group of guys, the humanists, that started digging up some of these old texts and reading them. They found inspiration there. And there was a push for like individual study and accomplishment again. And I think that today we're in a very similar situation. However, I don't think that it's like the church restricting things at this point. I think that it's more of like, and this part, part comes through like, you know, cancel culture and stuff like that on social media, where there's sort of this idea that like, there's a popular narrative and anyone who questions a po the popular narrative is kind of like silenced or stifled. And you know, I'm not like promoting one viewpoint over another, but I think that it's important that as a society, we allow space for people to be individuals, to think for themselves, to have opinions that differ from our own. And I think that as more people flourish as individuals, that's what produces a, a, a happy and flourishing society as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I feel so blessed to live in this country and the founding principles that have allowed us to get to this point uh, and how unique that is in the world, it's, it's something that can't be overstated, in my opinion. Um, before we dig a little bit deeper down that path, I, wanted, I do want to take one step backwards. Do you, you've studied now the Renaissance philosophy and history. When you put yourself in the mind of one of these, you know, how we look at them, they're ancient people, you know, that's ancient history. Sure. Isn't it incredible how modern their life experience was? Like the things that they were dealing with, family dynamics, work dynamics, business dynamics. I would argue that somebody who is living two or 3,000 years ago in their daily life, they probably 
thought that they were modern too. Like they didn't have a different, much of a different experience than we do. And if you read history and understand history, then, then you understand that. Now, all of a sudden you go from the time of Rome into the dark ages and you're coming out of it in the Renaissance and they're rediscovering this ancient. I think that's what you meant by it. It's like, that's why we're living in kind of like a similar time here. Mm -hmm. It's not lost on me how fragile our society is. And at any second, like we could be pulled back into a dark ages kind of time. Do you, do you think about that? I, I do. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think in, in some ways, and it's, it's like, as I was reading Patriarch, who, you know, I talk about, he's kind of the father of the Renaissance. He wrote a lot of self-reflective writing that was very different than what we'd seen in the past. Um, you know, of course, you had like Marcus Aurelius that that was kind of his meditations weren't really around during the Renaissance period, at least the early Renaissance period, because they were in Greek. So they, they couldn't really access them in Italy. But um, you didn't see so much self-reflective work like. Patriarch had all these letters that he wrote and he's just kind of questioning himself and his thoughts. And he talked a lot about feeling like he was living in this age of darkness. He, he references over and over again. And he would talk about like the light of antiquity and sort of this like illumination that was coming from the past. But he felt that kind of his age was dark. And it, when I look around, like it's, it's not that I'm not hopeful because I, I know that like the dark never completely overtakes anything. But when I when I look around, like you said, I, I do see things could shift very quickly where it's just like the light kind of gets choked out. And I think that there's a lot of really like toxic ideology in the world today. I think that, you know, like I said before, people have really drifted away from wisdom. And I, I think that there is a lot of pressure for people not to be free thinkers and. You know, that that's. I, I don't know that that's one of the biggest like motivators that I have as far as like the message that I'm trying to spread is just to, to hopefully get people where they can kind of think freely again, where there, there's not this like oppression of individuals and, and individual thought. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to, I'll be the first one to say that, especially during COVID and when people were being canceled and it seemed like rational thought was being attacked. And if you, if you put your honest thoughts out there, you were being silenced. You were being canceled off the internet. I, um, in the earliest days of COVID on March 17th, when New York state forced me to shut down my whole business, I had to furlough 170 employees and close down my, at that time I had 10 locations, stay away 15. Um, I had to send all those people home. And I wrote a letter, a public letter, basically saying like, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. We're going to get through this together. Everybody in the world, literally in the world, is having the same experience that we are and to stay positive and hopeful. That, that was basically the essence of the message. And the amount of hate that I got from people coming out of the woodwork, yeah. you know, basically like I had a, one guy tell, told me, like, a, like a, a college acquaintance, he's like, it's irresponsible for you to tell people to give that kind of message. You need to pe tell people that they need to get into their homes and they need to get food and respirators and things. And, you know, like all these doomsday, you know, and uh, doomsday sure. people. So it, it's so, it's a refreshing when people put their voice out there, you know, like you've done it in a book here to, to try to influence modern thought. But 
Uh, we are living in a crazy, crazy time. Are you tracking everything going on with Elon Musk right now and Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, I follow it a little bit. Um, to, to some extent, I try to stay out of uh, of like the, the current events too much just because it, it gets yeah. a little frustrating for me sometimes. But uh, again, I think that Elon Musk is a he's a good example of someone that has essentially at this point, right? Like you can't really cancel Elon Musk per se, especially, but now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you look at Tesla stocks getting destroyed. Like he, he's everyone, like everyone kind of hates this guy all of a sudden. Yeah. And it, just a couple of years ago, everybody loved this guy. Everybody was driving Tesla. He's going <laughs> to save the world. Like, but all it takes is just kind of expressing an opinion or showing something that is contrary to popular narrative. And all of a sudden you're, uh, you know, I mean, basically it's like right wing extreme that that's, that's yeah. kind of like the new, I feel like the fringe thing is, you know, and in the Renaissance, it would have been your, your, uh, you know, your blasphemous, right? Like you're, you're going against the church. Like don't question this idea. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing it again. Well, since we're, it's on the business jujitsu podcast, I think it's, it's worth noting that while Tesla stock is getting absolutely destroyed right now, so is every other tech company. You know, I sure. mean, it's not even a question where that Amazon and Facebook and every other tech company basically across the board is uh, is in a similar cohort. And so you're looking at macroeconomic conditions that are affecting everybody. I, you know, they've tried to point it in from the New York Times and, and major news outlets that his behavior is the reason for the stock crash, which is just categorically incorrect. It's just not true when compared to the market and you just take basic business and market fundamentals economic fundamentals and apply them to the whole cohort of businesses in the s p 500 or in his own tech you know or even in the car industry and you'll and you'll see that it's following the you know the market not following his behavior so i just think that's worth noting um you said that you uh are in a chain of businesses. So as your capacity as an entrepreneur and a business person, what has this study and writing this book meant to you? Um, so I'll kind of say like, I think that my life in that viewpoint is sort of um, segmented. I, I think that I, I kind of, <laughs> I feel like I live multiple lives to an extent, right? Like my my day job is kind of one thing and i think that the the book and the the pages and all of my other side projects are, are sort of a different thing and um my day job and the opportunities that i've had and the success that i've had in business you know with my business partners and getting some ownership into the into the company has allowed me to pursue my my passions and so it's kind of like in some ways it's kind of a love hate relationship because sometimes you're like, I just wish I had more time to pursue my passions, but I'm very grateful for the experience and like for everything that I've learned from there too. So I'll say like, there's someone that I read about in the Renaissance, you know, he's in the book, uh, Poggio Bracciolini. <clears throat> and he was one of the early humanists and he wrote a lot. He discovered a bunch of texts. He translated, um, but he worked for the Pope. And he basically went around with the Pope carrying, uh, taking down records and just doing like record keeping and taking notes for him, dictating letters. And that allowed him to get access to a lot of ancient books and monasteries where he was able to pull these books out and study them. So 
And interestingly enough, Poggio Bracciolini was also, he's from like a poor family. He kind of, he, he used his career to build himself up to a certain point. And then he had, you know, the other things that he worked on. And so I, I kind of fashioned myself in the same light. You know, I think that um, work is work. It, it provides me with the opportunities that I need to, to access and do the other things that I'm passionate about. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause um, when I was 33, I'm 37 now uh, I had kind of compartmentalized my life too, where my jujitsu was one distinct area of my life and my dojo and my gym. And then my businesses and my, and my personal life were a completely and separate and distinct thing. Uh, I was almost closeted to my jujitsu because of so much ridicule over the years of, Hey, you still doing that karate thing or just people in my life having an absolute zero understanding of what it was. Um, and just having to explain it over and over again and getting the eye rolls and, and the laughs. And so, you know, that kind of like forced me to just keep it separate. And, um, when I decided that I wanted to write this book, I also decided part of my motivation for wanting to write business jujitsu was I said, I don't use my jujitsu for anything besides just doing jujitsu. And of course the lessons that I'm learning, but I don't network with it. I don't go out and meet other people. I don't use it for business relationships. And I said, I want to go talk to all these incredible people that do jujitsu too. I want to talk to Navy SEALs and CEOs and, and ADCC champions and UFC vets. I want those people to be my friends. And I said to my wife one night, I was like, I want my heroes to be my friends. You know, I want to go out there and talk to people who have this interest with me. And so I, I, when I brought it all together, that's why I named it business jujitsu. I was like, so I'm going to bring this whole thing together. And it was an immeasurable improvement on the quality of my entire life because I brought the thing that I was so passionate. First of all, I was very passionate about business, but I was also love jujitsu, training it, talking about it, you know, living the principles, learning new things about it, traveling for it. And so that didn't happen until I was in my, you know, mid thirties. And, um, I would, I'd be interested to know if that's something that maybe unlocks one day for you too, you know, as I'm just a little bit ahead of you to see maybe those two worlds collide. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see it happening. Um, the, the thing with the, you know, kind of like the gym business and everything is it, I guess there, there's obviously like interlap when you have to do with the philosophy of what it takes out in business or jujitsu or, you know, in writing the book. And there, there's bits and pieces that I take, um, you know, the, my business that I have, um, I'm like a minority partner. So I started with a couple of guys who opened a chain of gym, gyms about eight years ago. Um, so my, my stake in the business is too small to be able to make like a drastic change and being able to make things compatible. Um, as far as just like philosophically combining everything, I think it would be difficult, but, um, certainly, I mean, the, the experience that I've gotten there, the, the ability, like I said, to see a business grow, to help a business grow from one location and, you know, myself being pretty much the only employee up to seven locations and, you know, having, you know, 40, 50 employees across the company. I mean, that's definitely been a, a good experience for me. Yeah. It's um, growing a business like that. Multi-location is, is very, very difficult. Uh, oftentimes entrepreneurs, that's the first question they ask me, they go and they open some kind of store, gym, jujitsu academy. They have one location, they're running it, they're 
full bit. And now they want to open up a second location and a third location. And, you know, you get to that second and third location and all of a sudden it becomes, you're splitting your time in third and you're like, I don't know how I could split my time anymore. You know, I only have so much time. And so the answer again is becomes obvious, but incredibly difficult for some people is to delegate and replicate and yeah. as I often tell a lot of my managers, you have to create a million little versions of yourself and empower them with philosophy and learning and business to, to, to get to that next level. And so many entrepreneurs, they can't get past one location because they can't, you know, let go of the wheel. They just, they don't know how to empower the next people around them and teach. And, um, you know, jujitsu in that sense has been very powerful for me to, to do it because in jujitsu, I have to go in there and physically do the work every single day. You know, I have to show up. I have to do it in business. I'm constantly um, trying to get other people to do it. And so learning how to teach jujitsu and learning how to teach business, I, in my book, I call this like a technical framework. And I spoke about this at great length with uh, John Danahar, which is, you know, learning how to become a great teacher is, um, is also paramount in learning how to become a great jujitsu practitioner. You know, and you often see, like John said, uh, he teaches his his top students how to be great teachers as well. So I love, you know, it's uh, the parallels are, are all there. Yeah, I think, you know, so, something you hit on too, like you know, in my business experiences, um, is right. Like you, you have to be doing something, or you, your goal should be trying to make things scalable, because if if your business is something that is going to require you to be there for 40 hours per week or 50 or 60 hours per week, there's really not much opportunity for growth and change because you're the ma majority of your time is going to be involved in just the day-to-day -day operations of the business. So, you know, making things scalable and figuring out, you know, what we talk about a lot is we, we like to set up systems. So, you know, <clears throat> I could, I could use an example that, that we found in our, in our business, right. Um, which, one of the reasons that we're successful in the gym business is because we focus heavily on uh, leads and sales. So we we're really aggressive about follow-ups. We send texts, we send phone calls, we're creative in our messaging. It's not like when you go to like an LA fitness and you, you put a guest pass in and they send you a couple emails or whatever. It, it's like, we're, we're a person on the phone and we teach all of our, our staff a lot about sales to be able to get someone into the gym. And, you know, we have a system that we use where we, we label all of the leads, we follow up with them on a set interval. Mm -hmm. And by doing that and setting up a system, you allow yourself to not have to be the person that's making the sales, because that's one of the most time consuming parts of the business is, um, you know, just, just doing that, just trying to get people in the door. And I, I think it's the same at most businesses, right? Like you're, you're just always trying to get those sales and get people in the door. So the more you can automate those things or take the guesswork out where, you know, like at the end of the day, if you have to search for two years to find the right employee to be able to fill the role that you need, then you're going to be limited by that growth. But if you can create a reproducible system that you can train someone on over the course of a month or two, at that point, you can hire anyone basically, and you can just train them as long as they're teachable. Um, so, I mean, I know that you know, as a, as a boss, one of my favorite types of employees is just someone that's teachable. Um, I don't really like the people that come in and think they know everything and they're like a sales star. Occasionally those work out, but most of the time I prefer the person that doesn't know anything about sales. And they're just like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn. I'm here to, 
here to kind of see what I can what what I can take from you and how I can apply it into sales and getting better at sales. And those are usually the people that you know maybe they take a little bit longer in the in the long run, but end up kind of passing everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. So before we wrap up over here, I, I was interested to know if if there's one character from your book or or person to study from history. Who, who's your go-to thinker, you know, your go-to Renaissance wisdom? Uh, I, I, while you bring that up, I also want to just mention that you have a phenomenal Instagram account where you, um, you put up some really nice things. Let me, let me share that here. Appreciate it. Frame this conversation. So first of all, you have Renaissance wisdom, your account yeah. uh, at Renaissance wisdom on Instagram where you share uh, thinkers from, from the Renaissance, like Kant, and here's Pythagoras. Um, you also have another uh, page, which is here, and it's Philosophy Says, and this, this extends out past the Renaissance. You have thinkers like Viktor Frankl on here, mm -hmm. and, uh, and characters from history. You have Stoics like Marcus Aurelius. And, um, you know, I, I love these accounts that you have. They're always great for good little messages of the day. And then, so that one is philosophy says at philosophy says on Instagram. And then you're Shane Sorensen 89 on Instagram. And so you put these up every day. Uh, who is your, you know, right off the top of your head thinker that has impacted your life that you would send people to on, you know, if they wanted to pursue <clears throat> the path down to wisdom. So if, if you're looking for, uh, I've got two answers, all right, but they're a little bit different. So that if you're looking for like really easy to apply practical wisdom that can directly impact your life, I think that you can't go wrong with the Stoics. There's a reason that Stoicism is so popular. Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, um, Seneca is my favorite of the three uh, major, you know, Stoic philosophers. Their stuff is really easy. It was you know, Seneca was really, really widespread um, and well-read during the Renaissance. He's got so many insights on things like life and how precious each moment is, reflecting on death. Um, there's a lot of little snippets that you can pull out of his philosophy and like just directly kind of make yourself a better life. Um, my favorite kind of thinker, and if someone has a little bit more patience, I think I would always recommend like grab the uh, Socratic dialogues by Plato and read the words of Socrates because Socrates is considered by many to be the father of modern philosophy. Um, he has a really, really aggressive way of breaking down kind of preconceived notions of questioning your ideas and your thoughts about things about you know, making clear definitions on what words mean. And I think that a lot of the way that we see the world starts there. Um, in order to really make a change to your life, you have to be able to look inwardly and start to question things. And that a lot of times means questioning the beliefs that you hold very dearly. Mm -hmm. if, if you're not willing to do hard work, if you're not willing to question yourself and be humble by what you learn, I think that it's very difficult to make progress. So yeah. Socrates, definitely, definitely my big recommendation. No, ec excellent answer. Uh, yeah, the, the Stoics have impacted my life uh, immeasurably, mostly introduced to it through 
uh, Ryan Holiday's books, you know, uh, Ego is yep. the Enemy, The Obstacles of the Way, Stillness is the Key, etc. But also through, uh, I forget the translation, but I've read it once or twice of uh, Marcus's real, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. There's a, a many translations, but there's a more modern translation that's very digestible. Um, I'll drop that in the comment section of this, all the, the links of this podcast. And if you had a, I, I read a book, um, I think it was by Paul Johnson on Socrates many years ago. Let me just double check that that is Paul Johnson, Socrates. Let me just make sure that was the right one. You, you got to hire a guy like Joe Rogan to like, yeah, to look stuff up for you. <laughs> like, Hey, like, look at, look it up real quick. Let's pull it up. There's a great book that I read on Socrates. It's very easy. It's by Paul Johnson. It's called Socrates, A Man of Our Times. As a matter of fact, I'll just share that on the screen right now because that was the one that I read and it's super digestible and easy. And I'm interested to know which book. Uh, can you see my screen here on Amazon? Yes, I can see it. Yeah. Uh, this is the one that I read. Oh, you can actually see. I read, bought it back November 27th of is this when I bought it or uh, I bought it in 2016? <laughs> you purchased okay. this item on July 6, 2016. Isn't Amazon amazing that it tells you that? Yeah. Uh, so I read this back in 2016 and I remember that it really impacted my life in, in, in a big way. Which book would you uh, recommend? Uh, I Again, I think if it's like, if you're looking at just really, really easy, like easy to apply kind of, I can pick this up and pull stuff out. I, I think it's really hard to go wrong with either, you know, meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh -huh. um, you know, I really like letters from a stoic by Seneca. And then uh -huh. of course you have the Enchiridion by Epictetus. Those are, you know, the three kind of workers by them I'd recommend. Um, if you want to actually get into the works, uh, if literally, if you just look up the Socratic dialogues um, by Plato, there's usually a collection and it'll, it'll usually be, you know, somewhere between like five, five to seven or so um, of some of the different dialogues, because, you know, I'm sure you, you read a lot about this, but, you know, Socrates didn't believe in writing anything down. And so everything that we know about Socrates exists from his students and from people who like uh, observed him. So yeah. the, the Socratic dialogues are a bunch of back and forth conversations that Plato observed and supposedly recorded of Socrates. So you get to kind of see Socrates in action. So it's not just a guy writing a book. You have to do some work and understanding that there's a dialogue and, you know, have to do some research, but I definitely think it's worth it. Yeah. All right, everyone. So you have, there you go. You have uh, a couple, some homework assignment if you're interested in digging into deeper on this, on this uh, subject. <laughs> Shane, I want to share uh, your website and your book before we go. Okay. And I will link to all of this, of course. But uh, your book is available at Amazon. Here it is, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day. Oh, look, there I am. I'm a man of my word. I actually, I bought this back in October of 22. Here it is on my desk. I highly recommend you all read it. Well written, very well researched. And uh, something I had very, very, very little knowledge of outside of what you see in movies. So it's really interesting to learn a little bit about uh, the Renaissance, especially coming out of the Dark Ages. That was probably my favorite part. And your website is here. Renaissance-wisdom.com, where you can learn more about Shane, 
get some of his merch, read his blog, and uh, it is is really an honor to talk to you and to support your book. Um, I also wanted to mention, I mentioned this to you online, and I'm not just saying that I think it's a beautiful cover. Uh, I'm writing my book right now, working on my cover design, and oh my God, is it an absolute torture session to try to figure out and go back and forth with the cover designer on picking something. And man, did you nail it on this. I mean, it is so beautiful. So congratulations on beautiful work. And I hope that you continue to write. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's uh, the cover designer is uh, Andy Bridge. So he he did the cover for Life of Pi. Uh Um, I, I found him through like a, you know, just basically like a higher website. And it's funny because I had a very different idea in my head like my idea in my head was what you normally see which is you know like plain white or black with like maybe like the bust of a philosopher on it something really classical and he sends me over three or four uh you know just kind of like concepts and i'm like wow these are really really different than what i had in mind but i i ran some polls on instagram and everybody loved the you know the duomo the on the church cover yeah um i ended up running with that and i i have to uh, give him props because I think that probably has a lot to do with the sales that I've made too. Just, you know, <laughs> they say you can't judge a book by a cover, but like, I think cover that's how people buy books. And yeah. <laughs> my, it's funny. My, my first book, this is it, which I co-authored with my dad. It chronicled my first 10 years in business. Um, I, you know, my publishing team and my book cover designer, my book cover designer was, uh, Aaron Tyler and Aaron Tyler or Taylor. Oh man. It's been a couple of years now. Maybe anyway, I'm reading David Goggins first book. Um, the first one was can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. And that book was so good that I literally read it to the extreme last page. Like, at, like you just can't stop turning it. Mm-hmm. And on the very, 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 very last page of that book, he has acknowledgements and the, the woman who designed, actually a lot of the people on his team were the people on my team and the girl uh, that designed okay. it covered it. And I was like, you didn't tell me that you were working there. Like we were, couldn't, we were, it was secrecy. We couldn't tell you, but I made it all the way to the very last page of Goggins book and boom, there my team was. So anyway, shout out to the whole scribe team and to Aaron and thank you. And thank you, Shane. Really appreciate you. Uh, you're invited back to come on anytime. If you have news or want to share, you want to talk about philosophy. If you have anything you want to promote, love to have you back. It's been a pleasure connecting with you and I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Cool. Thanks for having me on and I've had a great time. Thank you. See ya.